Hey everyone, this is Risky Business, the podcast where we talk all about cybersecurity. My name's Patrick Gray and uh, Adam Boileau will join us in just a moment for a look at the week's security news and then we're going to check in with this week's sponsor. Brian Dye is the CEO of Corelight, and uh, Corelight is the company that maintains the Zeek network sensor, uh, which is open source. And they also make a uh, full MDR platform now, complete with a pointy clicky cloud interface and whatnot. And uh, Brian joins us this week to talk about how Corelight has used ChatGPT in its uh, latest product release. And not only does their use case here look quite reasonable, but Brian managed to talk about ChatGPT on a podcast and still sound like a normal human being, which is quite the achievement. Uh, but Adam, let's get into the news now. And uh, I'm going to start it off with your dog. I heard you like supply chain attacks. So I put a supply chain attack in your supply chain attack. <laughs> yes, there has been reporting uh, that uh, 3CX, the company that uh, had their software backdoored uh, by the North Koreans, was themselves uh, initially breached through a supply chain attack, uh, in this case uh, from a vendor called uh, Trading Technologies. They made some kind of like financial trading software used by banks, and no one's really sure why someone from 3CX uh, downloaded and ran it. Yeah, and it's, I think it's kind of defunct software as well, like not so maintained anymore. The thing that surprises me about this is not that 3CX was owned by another supply chain attack, but that people are surprised that the supply chain hackers did supply chain hacking. You know, like the reaction to this is, oh my God, you know, can you believe it? It was a supply chain attack in a supply chain attack. And it's, well, that's how these guys move laterally. It's, it's kind of right there in the name, the chain <laughs> yeah, part the of chain. supply chain. Right. Yes, exactly. So I, I was also surprised by the breath, sort of breathless headlines saying it was the first of its kind, etc. which, yeah, it seems kind of logical that you would supply chain a thing and then maybe onwards supply chain a thing. Although, like the fact that the software was, as you said, a couple of years end of life and not being maintained and then the person who downloaded it didn't seem to have any particular reason to have done so. Seems a little sus. Uh, it makes me wonder, you know, if there was some other mechanism by which that download was triggered, kind of thing. Was triggered, yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But like, I, again, I mean, I think the thing that is worth pointing out here is that supply chain <laughs> attackers are going to use the access they get through one compromise in the supply chain to get other uh, uh, compromises into the supply chain because that's that's generally what they what they do. Tom Uren is uh, working on some analysis for us for for tomorrow's newsletter on this, and you know his take on this whole thing, and I think it's an interesting one, is that this sort of thing just shows how different how differently the North Koreans operate to most government crews in that most government crews will start with a target in mind and uh, go after the target, whereas the North Koreans will just, you know, go out there, collect shells, get into the supply chain and sort of see where they land and, and what, they can, what they can do with that access, right? Which is a very different proposition. Yeah, exactly. Like if your ultimate goal is steal money, you certainly have a lot more options uh, than if you're given specific tasking to collect intel about a particular thing, you know, for some analysts report up into the government. So it's, yeah, you've got a lot more options and a lot more maneuverability in a way uh, if you're a North Korean hacker. Well, I mean, I'll talk with Tom about this tomorrow, but I think it's bigger than that, right? Because they're operating without the legal constraints. And I think if you were a Western intelligence agency, like you'd be quite tempted to just go and own a bunch of stuff and see where you pop up, right? So, <laughs> so you know, I, I, I don't think it's so much about the, the, you know, the end result they're shooting for being just financial, financially motivated. I think you could 
probably achieve some pretty good results on intelligence collection if you just go out and own everything through the supply chain as well, right? Um, <laughs> but yeah, we'll, we'll dive into that in uh, Seriously Risky Business tomorrow. Um, but we got this leaked memo here too, Adam, or a report on a leaked memo. And this has been written up by Bloomberg. Uh, apparently, Russia is getting concerned that it's going to be overly reliant on Chinese technology uh, because of all these sanctions against it over, over the, the Ukraine war. And, you know, I mean, it's you, you, you're reading it and you're just like, oh, that's a shame. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 sort of the, the, the sensible, the classic sensible chuckle gif is what came to my mind when yeah. I was reading this. But the, the amazing thing is, you know, it's all the same concerns, a lot yes. of the same concerns anyway, that, that Western uh, governments have, which is like, <laughs> well, are we really going to let the Chinese be, you know, the, the sole vendor into all of our like critical networks and stuff, right? Yeah, sitting there worried about, uh, you know, reliance on Huawei, for example. Seems very, very familiar to the things that we've been through here in the West. And, of course, Russia is in such a strange position with, uh, you know, the amount of sanctions on them that, you know, there probably aren't very many, very many people who will sell them high-tech stuff uh, yeah. that they need. And, you know, China's uh, going to be sitting right there and maybe their only option. Well, I mean, this is the whole thing that people have been saying, which is that this whole situation is putting Russia in a position where it's going to be essentially a, you know, vassal state of China, right? So this is just one way in which that that manifests. I mean, we've, we've covered other reports too about how they're trying to move to, you know, customised Android OSs for government workers and stuff. When you and I spoke about this at uh, the Acer conference in Canberra, afterwards a, a Finnish gentleman came up and, and mentioned that that was uh, like the Finnish Sailfish OS, uh, the Sailfish Android. But, you know, I did some research on that and it turns out that the Finnish company behind that sort of severed ties with Russia actually quite a while ago. So now they're trying to maintain their custom, you know, fork of a custom fork. And, you know, it's all, it's all just getting messy is what I'm, is what I'm getting at. But, you know, and I don't think it's the case that Russia trusts Western companies more. I think it's more the fact that having a mix in terms of the products used in these critical applications is just a good thing. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah, exactly. And when you look at some of the trade numbers uh, between Russia and China, um, you know, there is quite a lot of eggs in that basket. I mean, they're talking like uh, almost doubling uh, over the last couple of years in terms of trade volumes. So like, that's just that's a it's a lot of lot of eggs, a lot of eggs. Yes, it is. Now let's talk about space, Adam. And apparently, like as we record this, uh, someone is due to demonstrate some satellite hacking uh, at a conference in Paris. Uh, yes, some uh, researchers from Thales are going to be presenting at the conference SciSat in Paris, uh, and uh, ESA, the European Space Agency, had actually launched a satellite back in 2019, uh, which was meant to be used for this kind of research stuff. So they're actually apparently going to talk through uh, their techniques for taking over that particular satellite on orbit and then demonstrating some capabilities there such as manipulating imagery coming back down from the satellite etc etc so the sorts of things uh, that you would imagine you know if you were going to hack a satellite and you had some legitimate objectives the sorts of things that you would be doing so i'm going to be keen to see what this conference presentation looks like and what their techniques are and uh, we can go from there I do wonder why you would need an actual satellite in space to do this research, right? Like, it, it could be sitting in a shed and you could still do this research. I mean, it is cooler when it's in space, but you, you sort of see where I'm coming from, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the previous research, like it was, you know, Satellite Hacking Village at DEF CON um, a couple of years back, they started that, three or four years maybe. Um, and yeah, that was satellite hardware on the ground, definitely much more easy. But there's just something special about hacking a thing that's going, you know, 
27,000 kilometres an hour uh, around the Earth. Now, uh, this report, which is by Alexander Martin at The Record, actually mentions a Financial Times report that's just been massively syndicated over the last few days, uh, which is super confusing. Because <laughs> the FT report talks about a uh, uh, one of these leaked memos as part of these, these Pentagon leaks um, that talks about Chinese research into how to hack satellites. And they're saying, you know, the FT report says China's developing cyber weapons for satellites and it's all big, scary, scary. And the only thing that it really says in the in the report is that like they're going to somehow mimic the signals of satellites and take control of them and stuff. And it's all super vague and really confusing. And yet this report is just absolutely everywhere. But look, regardless of the specifics, the one thought that came to mind uh, when reading about this is, are we really surprised that China would be doing research on how to hack satellites? You know, I mean, I imagine every large country is doing research on how to hack satellites. Yeah, especially given you know, the US has historically had a pretty dominant position in space and now got a space force uh, to be in charge of that dominance. And you know, it's a thing that the US has focused on. It makes sense that all the adversaries you know, would be looking at their options and options beyond you know, kinetic and beyond traditional sorts of jamming sorts of approaches, like actual doing cyber. Totally makes sense. So not at all surprised. And we were talking last week about, uh, a week before maybe, about um, the US considering designated space as critical infrastructure and us both being surprised that it wasn't already. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, that FT report was just super weird. And um, yes, China is trying to hack satellites, but I don't think that's uh, super surprising. Of course, it is RSA week uh, in the United States, also a public holiday week in Australia and New Zealand with Anzac Day, which was uh, which was yesterday for us. So my calendar is like a ghost town this week <laughs> compared to normal. Uh, but there was a discussion between uh, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco and Chris Krebs, a friend of the show, over at RSA. And, uh, you know, she it was, it was an interesting conversation, right? And we got two reports here, one from The Record, one from CyberScoop, uh, where the aspects of the conversation that they've kind of honed in on are the fact that the, you know, Department of Justice in the United States is pivoting towards disrupting uh, cybercrime actors as opposed to just trying to prosecute everybody and not really stepping uh, beyond that. And uh, there's also some commentary in here about um, uh, about Joe Sullivan, whose sentencing is coming up soon. Of course, he was the uh, CSO of uh, Uber and, uh, you know, has been charged with uh, also, you know, lying to the FTC and whatnot. And, um, you know, the, the gist of the conversation is Lisa Monaco was saying, look, you don't have to worry that the government is out to get you. Um, what Sullivan is alleged to have done is actually quite serious. So it's not like they're out to get uh, uh, CISOs, right? Um, but the comments around uh, disruption were, were quite interesting, weren't they, Adam? Uh, yes, I mean, that's the thing we've advocated you know, on the show for a very long time to actually go out there and, and you know, use some of the tools and techniques of, uh, of cyber and hacking against crime groups. And yet the fact we are seeing US government and, and the Department of Justice and so on actually out there interfering with ransomware groups, stealing their bitcoins, returning ransom payments that have been made, et cetera, et cetera, over the last couple of years, like is a pretty big change to, you know, it wasn't that many years ago that the idea of, you know, forcibly patching someone's stuff remotely uh, was just, you know, un unheard of madness. Um, you know, the idea of worms that would do good things or whatever. So the idea that you would interfere with other people's systems was just, you know, I think as uh, Lisa Monaco said, heresy. Yes. Some years ago. And now it's a relatively regular thing that we see reported on. 
I mean, I think that's kind of a different issue. You know, the the good worm. You know, going yeah, out and it, fixing stuff like that. That's a different conversation. But I, you know, I I did find the heresy comment interesting, and she's right because. I would not have thought that this was going to be a function fulfilled by the Department of Justice, right? So when you and I first started advocating for this sort of approach five years ago-ish, uh, you know, we were really thinking it was going to be the SIGINT agencies or the military agencies like NSA or Cyber Command who were going to take on this role because disruption is kind of a thing that they do, whereas for DOJ it's not. And it's just really interesting that this has wound up being the domain of law enforcement and the justice system as opposed to uh, 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 the 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 you know, intelligence agencies. I, and I think that's a really interesting twist that I didn't quite see coming, which kind of underscores her heresy comment because it is unusual to see a law enforcement agency uh, doing stuff that's not about arresting people. Yeah, actual kind of preventative things. Uh, yeah, it is interesting that it ended up there. And, you know, I think to some of the, like, domain name-based um, disruption activities that Microsoft was pretty involved in pioneering, seeing things like that end up in the Department of Justice, I guess makes sense from an authorization point of view. You know, it's a, 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 they are more able to authorise those activities through the courts, et cetera, et cetera, than, you know, intel agencies... Well, sort of, because, I mean, we're talking about people who are based outside the United States, so it, it does get all a little bit strange. But I guess the crimes are committed in, in the US, so I don't know, man. But I, yeah, I, I, I'm I, just happy that it's happening, you know? Exactly. Who, who really understands, uh, you know, the machinations of the United States government apparatus? Because <laughs> I know that, you know, despite covering it for a long time, I don't know that we do. Um, but yeah, it's getting done. That's the important thing. Well, but I think, you know, this stuff is always changing, isn't it, right? Like there, there was no hard and fast rule five years ago about, you know, who should disrupt foreign criminal organisations <laughs> doing ransomware. I mean, like the idea that you would have a very clearly understood path to doing this, you know, like, oh, well, here is the way we should do it according to our system of government. Like that that had to be worked out. But, you know, who cares? It's got a bow on it, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, exactly, exactly. Yes. <laughs> And look, staying with US government stuff, and this one is fantastic. There's a new bill uh, that looks uh, that proposes that the Department of Homeland Security will establish centers for testing uh, the products that are used by the US government. And this is just this is uh, based on a recommendation that came out of the you know Cyber Solar Cyberspace Solarium Commission, and it's a great idea. It's the sort of thing that you and I have have said that you know just should be done, right? Which is that. Uh, someone needs to be testing these products and not against EAL criteria and not against FIPS. They need to be sitting down and actually trying to hack these things to work out, uh, you know, what sucks basically so that they can then either pressure the vendors through their procurement powers to uh, improve their products or just ditch them, um, you know, gradually, of course, because you can't just ditch everything that's bad. But what a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. It's an it's an excellent idea. And also just from a return on investment point of view, solving bugs early on before you've gone and bought them and integrated them into, you know, some important part of your economy. Like it just is easier to do it up front. Um, and yeah, I for one am definitely here for this. I mean, product eval work is just super rewarding work for pen testers. It's enjoyable. Uh, you find good bugs. And yeah, you actually solve problems. I mean, I think this is less about identifying specific bugs and more about putting a product that is used widely in the United States government in front of a bunch of people like you and saying, is this a piece of shit? Yeah. You know, it's yeah, not about a... like, can you find a CVE? It's like, you know, is this a piece of right like that's the that, that's what they should be doing with this yeah exactly and you know quite often there are sensible recommendations or sensible things that the vendors could do and very few customers 
have the time and budget or, you know, got enough leverage to make those things happen, whereas, you know, US government probably does have those things. There's, you know, there's a lot of great work that could be done, you know, in a, you know, centre like this. Yeah, I mean, I would hope too that they would release their reports publicly because I think that would be, a, you know, that would provide just an enormous benefit to the wider community. Yeah, I think that's a, that would make a whole bunch of sense. Um, and, you know, we're always happy to see great pen testing work done uh, and very few reports or very few outputs from great hackers gets publicised, you know, outside of Project Zero or wherever else, right? I mean, there's not that much work that's there for people to go and look at. Mm. I mean, you know what I mean about the piece of shit comment though too, right? Yes. Because you can you can pull down, you could do a teardown on a, actually a really good product and still find like a CVSS 9.8 in it, Right. But the product's good, and you're like, okay, that was a that was a weird one. But once you fix that, it's it, it's pretty good. And other ones, you might just start rattling out all of these weird web bugs and just go, look, I've got bad vibes here, and you know, yes, it's, uh, you know, into the bin, right? Yeah, and you do get a very quick feel, you know, once you start pulling apart a piece of software, whether it's been made with care and love uh, <laughs> and good feelings, or whether it's a, it is, as you say, a, a piece of shit. And that's a hard thing to convey to a commercial customer sometimes because they're like. Look, little man, you don't understand, you know, business, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're just saying, hey, I got bad hacker vibes, then it's a difficult sell. People just want to see reports with findings in it rather than, uh, than you know, feelings about software. Now, uh, let's look at this Washington Post story here uh, by Craig Whitlock and Nate Jones. Keith Alexander, who was the former head of the National Security Agency, uh, he was uh, head under both uh, uh, President Barack Obama and George W. Bush, um, you know, he, he exited his job and signed up a bunch of consulting deals, a big one with Japan, but also a big one with Saudi Arabia. And this, of, of course, was after the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, so it's not a good look, right? But this whole thing is so complicated. Like if you start looking at the US approach to Saudi Arabia, they are selling them, you know, huge amounts of arms, right? And, and are clearly very much allied with Saudi Arabia on a bunch of stuff. But then when someone like Keith Alexander goes and does consulting to the Saudi Arabian government, like that's, that's seen as bad. So the whole thing's just really complicated and has many dimensions to it. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of uh, ex-American military and, and uh, government figures who end up you know, doing consultancy work for governments, both you know overtly friendly, I guess, like Australia, uh, and then complicated ones, uh, you know, like the Saudis and uh, and wherever else. And uh, I guess it doesn't look great on the back of you know some of the concerns we've seen of you know quite technical people coming out of the US government and doing work you know in the UAE for example that uh, project raven report going back a couple of years now you know got some people worried about uh, you know exactly how much tech and knowledge was being transferred out of US government heads and into into other people but there is kind of a difference between going and talking at a conference and and collecting a you know a, a big paycheck or providing some consultancy versus you know, the sorts of things that were going on. Versus you know, recreating, you know, parallel reconstructing exploits or whatever. Yeah, it, it is different. And and I think, though, this isn't like speak at a conference sort of stuff. This is proper consulting. And I guess because this story, I, I agree with you, it sort of conflates this uh, this problem of like technical knowledge transfer, right? That's an issue. Uh, it sort of conflates this with that. And there is some interesting stuff in here because they really talk about how Australia has actually spent a bunch of money on some ex-US Navy types, right? Uh, paid them gargantuan amounts of money. But, you know, this is in the context of us negotiating the AUKUS deal and 
really throwing a million bucks at some very senior retired US Navy person to come in and do a review of how we're running our Navy, I think is probably money well spent. And if you're trying to build out your SIGINT capability, getting someone like Keith Alexander to come in and say, well, maybe you need a you know, you need a group or a department that does this. You need to build this out a little bit more. Like that That sort of advice can be uh, extremely valuable. Now, should you be doing that for Saudi Arabia uh, is still is still a, a, a question, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And as you said, that relationship is quite complicated. I mean, obviously they've got Iran in common as an enemy, but you know, the, the killing of Khashoggi was also particularly horrific. Uh, and, you know, I would feel weird taking money from the Saudis. Yes. But, like, I guess I'm also not the ex-head of the NSA. So. Well, I mean, this isn't the first controversial thing involving Keith Alexander, right? Like, look at IronNet, which was a company that, you know, really was selling vaporware and making outrageous statements to the market, talking about how much money they were going to make. And it just, none of it materialised. And there's going to be legal, I would imagine there's going to be some legal problems stemming from that. So, you know, it does really seem like uh, Keith Alexander definitely wanted to shore up his bank balance after he left government service. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, and when, I guess, you know, when when you do retire from a position like that, maybe you feel somewhat entitled to it. I don't know, but uh, Well, I think there's also there's great. also judgment issues that kick in, right? Like for and I'm just speaking, I'm not speaking about him specifically, just generally speaking, a lot of people they come out of government and they don't necessarily have the context they need to make good decisions in the private sector, right? So you do see people occasionally doing weird stuff. Yeah, and I guess, you know, if you've worked in government your whole career, a lot of those choices are kind of made for you. And then, as you say, you come out into the private sector and it's a little bit more cutthroat in some respects and a little bit more freewheeling maybe. And, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's probably a hard adjustment, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I've linked through to a PBS story too about the US approving a massive arms sale to Saudi Arabia. (laughs) Just a contrast, yes. (laughs) Um, Great story here from Wired, from Lily Hay Newman. Uh, She wrote up some... Google cloud research into Intel uh, uh, Intel hardware security, right? So basically Intel have given an unprecedented level of access to their IP to let Google, you know, go through it and look for bugs before they start manufacturing certain things, right? And this is just such a great story of where a major customer, in this case Google, you know, teams up with one of their suppliers, lends some expertise and, and we all get a good result because they found some pretty serious stuff here. Yeah, this is really, really interesting research. This was looking into a thing called uh, trust domain extensions, which is a mechanism that Intel are building to allow kind of more isolation of virtual machines and specifically uh, isolation from the operator of the underlying hardware, which if you're Google Cloud, you want to be able to provide assurances that Google engineers aren't snooping around uh, in customers' virtual machines, etc. And this is a mechanism for the hardware to assist or provide those sorts of controls. And so, yeah, Google Project Zero plus a bunch of the Google Cloud people uh, teamed up with Intel looked at, you know, the the trust model of this, you know, of the problem that they're trying to solve, dug into a bunch of the technical implementation details. And as you said, came up with, you know, a couple of pretty reasonable bugs, plus, of course, a bunch of good recommendations about defense in depth and other things that Intel should consider, you know, before they deploy them out into production and then have to fix it, you know, much like we've seen with some of the speculative execution uh, yeah. Etc. over the years. And this was, a, you know, a pretty all-star kind of team. Uh, Felix Wilhelm, James Forshaw, um, you know, amongst names that listeners may recognise, you know, spending like nine months digging into this. So this is a pretty serious piece of research. And the actual, 
like paper itself is an 80 page very dense pdf uh, that's come out of it and uh, i have not read it all <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i think the key thing that comes through here is the trust between google yes. and intel and it, and it, look despite them being just these massive you know, organizations that should do everything above board, like trying to get something like this to happen is very hard. And and the decisions would have been cleared at the highest levels of both companies, right? Yeah, I, w- I would imagine so. And it's kind of, you know, you're reading between the lines, you can see the extent to which the engineering teams were cooperating and, you know, sharing issue trackers, you know, having meetings to talk about the specifics and sharing wherever possible as much of the details of the technology and implementation, which, yeah, is unusual to see that degree of cooperation and kind of reassuring in a way. Yeah, and it's a win-win, right? Like, that's what I like about this is everybody benefits. Um, If anything, you know, Intel benefits because they've all of a sudden got these, you know, this incredible security resource looking at their stuff. Um, Google benefits because they get a better end product, which they are using at quite significant scale Adam so (laughs) you know it's just I I just love a love a win-win story now look we're going to talk about the 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 news this week that's going to make everyone rejoice right everyone is going to rejoice at this news which is Google's authenticator app uh, now syncs to your Google account right so if you lose your phone it's not the end of the world anymore. And thank God for this. I already went through the, um, I was talking, I, I first saw this in Catalan's uh, news bulletin this morning uh, when I was editing the, the podcast version. And he asked me if I'd actually had the update yet and I hadn't. So I went to the app store, did the update and it just says, hey, we've made a couple of changes. Now your stuff is synced to your Google account. Which Google account do you want to sync it to? You tap it. No, or you know, you don't have to author anything if you've got the Google apps on your phone and then just bang, it's done. And then you see a little green cloud icon and uh, happy days. Now, will this introduce some risk? I don't know, maybe like if your Google account gets popped, maybe someone can get your, your MFA seats uh, or your, you know, all your MFA stuff. But God, this just solves a problem that, you know, everyone complains about on Twitter all the time. Forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. The chance that you lose your phone or drop it in the toilet or whatever else, thus blowing away all of the seeds through MFA and making the process of gaining access to your accounts really difficult compared to someone getting into your Googles and then stealing the key material, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I feel like the former is a much more likely scenario for most people. Yeah. Uh, and I, for one, once you told me about this update, also went and got the update, clicked the button, and I too received the green cloud. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's just fantastic. <laughs> and, and I like that it's come – I mean, you know – Probably for corporate users, they don't use it all that much. But if you're a sysadmin or if you work in InfoSec, like you are absolutely running this. And it's just one of those things that's always in the back of your mind. You know, they've made it a little bit easier to move to a new device. Um, so that's nice. But yeah, there's that thing where like if I drop this thing, you know, into a river, <laughs> it's just going to ruin my life. Because then you got to go find all of the backup codes that you printed out and you put them somewhere and you've forgotten where they are and... You know, yeah, he moved house three times and et cetera, et cetera. And some of us have had Google accounts for, you know, 10, 15 years in some cases. You know, finding the trust anchor for that that sort of thing can be very, very difficult if if even possible. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, this is, uh, you know, every time you think, oh, I'm glad I didn't drop my wallet into the drain and got washed away, it's kind of the same. It's nice to have a little bit of reassurance that, yeah, when your kid bricks your phone, 
that you, you know, aren't going to have a terrible, terrible month of your life. Like I'm thinking, you know, I knew a, a guy, actually it was Pipes, uh, going through the process of trying to reset his MFA with Amazon and they wanted like court affidavits and stuff, which great. Yeah, it's that's nice good. that they wouldn't just get socialed, but what a pain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you can protect your Google account now with something like a YubiKey or whatever and like yes. that makes it a lot better. And, you know, it is funny though that we're finally seeing these sort of modern features on one-time password generators just as they're sort of becoming redundant <laughs> with the adoption <laughs> yeah, of FIDO2, right? And yeah, I, yeah. A, a mutual friend of ours um, just happened to be in the area uh, a, a few days ago and, and stopped by my place on the weekend actually and, um, you know, a, a CISO and we were just talking about their challenges and, you know, the biggest challenge he was dealing, you know, runs a modern shop, right? Like it's all very zero trusty and Azure AD and whatever. And one thing that uh, that he's worried about at the moment is the spear phishing risk to his um, staff. And they're using push, but it still makes him nervous, right? So, you know, when, when really looking at the fact that I think for his staff, pushing out YubiKeys to everybody is going to be really easy and cost something like 10,000 bucks. And that risk is just really minimized. You know, we are getting to the point where, stuff like FIDO2 for just everyday users of your org. If you're on something like Azure AD or if you're using like 0365 or whatever, it's it's. I, I feel like 2023 is the year that this went from being forward leaning to being just like a no brainer thing that everyone's going to do. Yeah. And especially if it's a smaller-ish user base, right? Where Yeah. They, 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 they have like tokens. several hundred, right? Like, yeah, so they're not a yeah. huge enterprise, but yeah. Yeah. It's just like that's seems like a no-brainer. I mean, the one incident response drill is going to pay for that, you know, kind of 10 times over already. So it just, yeah, it seems like a real smart move. And it's just, as you said, the friction has really been knocked out of the post-password auth process over the last year or so. Yeah, and I mean, you know, to, to roll them out, you just give one to a user and they enroll it themselves and it's all supported in AAD and, like, it's all, it's all fine. Yeah, you know, this is, 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 a, is a great place to be. It's not often we have good news in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, good on you, Google, but, you know, probably a little bit late, but, um, you know, anyway. Uh, now we've got some uh, some sort of harder research to talk about here, Adam, which is, um, you know, I, 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 I asked you to read this one, so I didn't have to, um, <laughs> but it's about it's about some weaknesses in the way certain services are using TLS, right? And and it the upshot is it's fixed, um, but it was pretty serious stuff. Yeah, so this is research that came out of uh, Paderborn University, which looked at uh, the TLS uh, 1.2 session resumption mechanism. So normally when you stand up a TLS connection, you know, with your browser or whatever, it goes and generates some key material and validates the certificates of the remote end to set up, you know, exchanges, ephemeral keys to use so that you can then run your, you know, your HTTPS connection over the S part of the HTTPS. And that process is computationally and time expensive. And so there's a mechanism uh, called session resumption where you can come back at a later date and re-establish that same TLS connection without having to go through the whole cryptographic process again. So you've already got the key material. And essentially what happens is that the server gives you some key material which is encrypted with the service keys that you can just give it back to it later and it has all the necessary state and so on uh, for that session to be resumed very very quickly now in some very small set of implementations uh, initially GNU TLS the open source um, SSL library um, was one that failed to correctly set up this key process and so if you went and, and made a TLS connection, you ended up with a you know a session ticket to resume where the key material was all zero. 
because they hadn't initialized it properly during the software startup, et cetera, et cetera. And that's dumb. Mm. Uh, because that's this that's pros- a proper mistake. Right? That's a proper mistake. Like this isn't. There's nothing subtle about that. Like, there's nothing subtle null, about that. Null, null, null key is, material. Uh, yeah, yes, not, not good. Yeah. is is not great. Uh, and so um, some researchers went and looked at that one, and then also kind of surveyed a bunch of machines on the internet, and actually found a couple of thousand systems at Amazon and AWS that were doing this, that had mm. some manner of key, some part of the key material process was coming up as zero for whatever reason. So they actually reached out to Amazon, got that fixed, um, and then went through and looked at a bunch of other implementations for the same sort of floor and found some examples of that. Um, Where this is particularly interesting, I guess, is that because this is post-certificate auth, it means you can bypass the certificate checking with this, which one of the key properties of TLS right there. Uh, And then the other is, even if the client machine itself doesn't use the uh, session resumption mechanism, that you can still show up and, and use it as a third party if you've got the necessary key material because it was all zeros in the first place. Uh, so pretty interesting flaw, um, not super widespread, but given the impact, it's kind of concerning that if you're working on cryptographic code that you could end up with your key material set to zero. So I guess the risk here is you could do a person in the middle between a you know client and a server and get in the middle of their TLS, right? And then from there, you can start stealing things like you know authentication information and whatnot. Yes. So yeah, if you've got the ability to passively record traffic, you can decrypt things that happen in the session before you resumed it because the key material is the same. And if you're active in the middle, then you can, as you say, um, stand up, impersonate something and, and carry onwards to great victory and compromise. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's not great. <laughs> no, not great, especially given um, that's the exact thing that TLS is for. <laughs> yeah, you had one job. Um, but it's good that it's fixed and, you know, just great yes. research, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, very solid research. And uh, it's just nice to see things, you know, getting hacked by, in this case, I guess, implementation flaws in crypto. So yeah. that's good. Nice one. Always like those kind of bugs. Uh, <laughs> we've got another. And it feels like every year there's like one or two of these. And... Uh, they have a 50% chance of actually being used, right? Like that's what it feels like. <laughs> if I'm going to put my you know, finger in the air and feel what I think uh, is going to happen here. Yeah, pick a number. Uh, so we got some research here from uh, BitSight and QSEC, uh, which and they found a like a reflection vulnerability in the service location protocol or SLP. But this gives you 2200x amplification, which is better than DNS. Yeah, so it's um, this is a service that's relatively common for finding other components of distributed software. So like VMware, for example, uh, uses this in ESX and the hypervisors. Uh, so yeah, if you can reach uh, the listeners for the uh, SLP protocol, which I think is about 427 UDP, uh, then yeah, traffic amp by spoofing source and, and off you go uh, to a giant denial of service. Yeah. Now, uh, back in March, uh, we reported and everyone else reported on this flaw in Papercut, which is a print management tool that is quite common, right? And it's a CVSS 9.8 and everyone looked at that and went, (laughs) geez, that one's pretty bad uh, and it's going to get used. And it looks like there is an exploit uh, for that one in the wild now that is being used uh, uh, and making everyone have quite hard times. Uh, This one, this is bad. This is actually quite bad because a lot, a lot of people use this. Yeah, this is a pretty widely used piece of software and the bugs themselves, there's, there's two bugs involved. There's a, like an auth bypass kind of thing uh, where you can turn on some dangerous functionality which then leads onwards to code exec by design. There's like a scripting mechanism where you can script how print jobs are handled by just writing Java 
in the web interface. So of course then you could submit shells and so it's not a memory corruption or anything unreliable. It's a by design code exec uh, that you can reach uh, through the web interface, which is always a good time. You know, printing is a thing that a lot of people don't think about. It just is provisioned by corporate and no one really asks how it works. But yeah, if you've got any one of those like swipe your ID card to have your print job come to the printer near you kind of thing, this is one of the tools that people use to do it. So yeah. Uh, what else have we got here? Yeah, the DC Health Exchange breach, which was um, you know gave up data on a lot of like important people in Washington DC. Uh, that breach has been tracked back to a quote misconfigured Amazon server. Not really a surprise there, but it is it is playing out how you predicted, Adam, which is people are being raked over the coals in various committees <laughs> over this because it involved politicians' health data. Yeah, exactly. It's gotten a, gotten a bunch of attention. It sounds like the machine in AWS they're talking about ran like reporting queries and spat out, you know, like spreadsheets or CSVs or whatever that it generated. Uh, and reading between the lines, it sounds like that was maybe just in the web route or S3 you know, bucket have, or something, yeah. or in an S3 bucket or, or something like that. Um, but yes, the politicians are investigating this. Uh, amongst other things, uh, said that uh, Mandiant were blaming it on AWS because Google owns Mandiant and Google is a competitor to amazon uh, and so yeah yeah i mean this <laughs> Which, guy has one of the best names too representative barry loudermilk uh who's a republican <laughs> i believe from georgia so there you go uh, dear, yeah that's a great name loudermilk you know Loudermilk's. you don't meet too many loudermilks in australia new zealand you know <laughs> <laughs> you don't mm. Uh, oh, threw this one in there. We should, probably should have talked about this a bit earlier, actually. But um, there's a great report out from Google's Threat Analysis Group looking at uh, Russian activities, um, particularly which group is it? GRU, I think. Yeah, looking at the GRU going into the energy sector um, in Ukraine, but also in, in the rest of Europe as well. Um, so, yeah, good good write-up from, uh, from TAG with a bunch of details and specifics of those campaigns and then a bunch of other fishing and stuff that's going on. Yeah, yeah, looking at where they're going, like Ukrainian defence industry as well, military and uh, UKR.net webmail users and whatnot. So so it is a big write-up on on what Russia's been up to. It, it kind of fits nicely with the, what we've been kind of talking about here over the last year, which is that Russia seems pretty good at getting shells, but like strategically not really going anywhere fast, right? And we even had Andrew Boyd from CIA talking about how there's some dysfunction there in terms of like going from collecting intelligence to actually turning it into something actionable on Russia's end. Anyway, you can uh, check out a link to the uh, tag report in this week's show notes. And this one, Adam, you added to the run sheet this week. It's Dina Temple Raston and uh, Will Jarvis at the record have done a, uh, an interview with an access broker, a uh, 27-year-old access broker from the, um, from the Donbass actually. And about, you know, how he got into it and how he got out of it, because it looks like he's claiming to be retired uh, now. And it's just a very, very interesting read. I, I, I did find it more interesting than I thought I would. Yeah, like I always like these kind of slice of life stories, you know, about how people end up in, in this world. And, he, you know, describes this guy who goes by uh, Bastelord, Bastelord. Uh, on the internet or Ivan in the interview uh, and you know basically he said like he was a graphic designer he worked in tech he knew some people uh, and then his babushka got sick needed some medicine you know he bought the medicine on credit now he has to go find a way to pay his bills and pay it back uh, and then from there gets onwards uh, into eventual you know working with Revil, working with Lockbit um, doing ransomware sorting out initial access etc so it's just a it's an interesting and, and 
you know, quite a human story in a way. Yeah. Um, which, you know. Well, I, also, I like. it also points out like how stressful the whole thing was. It wasn't his, his babushka either. It was his mum, uh, not his grandma. But um, yeah, it, it also points out like what a difficult time it is. Like the scene politics are really awful and he was getting death threats and stuff and like eventually claims to have just walked away from it. And now like uh, just collects passive income from people who he sort of set up to replace him. Yeah, it's uh, you know he talks about like going to the bank to get some money out, and then some guy is harassing him outside the bank, uh, and he thinks it's you know related to what he's been doing, but actually it's just some drunkard on yeah. the street, right? But you start seeing those shadows and jumping at them, and he says, you know, I'm on anxiety medication because of the stress of you know worrying about the money, worrying about the job, worrying about like at one point uh, I think he said the FSB asked him to come in and talk about something. And he's yeah. like, hell no, I'm going to delete some things. Uh, and it turns out it was, you know, kind of unrelated to his hacking. It was just the stuff that's going on, you know, in that part of Ukraine. So, you know, in that respect, kind of a bit of a cautionary tale about who you end up, you know, what, yeah. what you end up doing and what it can affect it can have on your life. Now, the last thing, Adam, uh, I'm going to link through to it. You and I spoke about Microsoft's plan to, uh, you know, introduce yet another naming convention for APT groups. Uh, they're trying to be authoritative <laughs> and blow away the other ones. Which has led to another cycle of really dumb debate on uh, InfoSec, Twitter and Mastodon about this very topic, which we do not need to recreate here. But I've linked through, <laughs> no, to, <we> don't. <laughs> I've linked through to Andy Greenberg's write-up on this uh, about you know APT naming conventions and whatnot. And the reason I've linked through to it, I initially cut it and then I read it and it's funny. And that's, that's, that's all. I think it's worth yeah. a read just because it's funny. Agreed? It is. It is funny, yes. And, you know, saying that we can't really be taken seriously as an industry when we have hacker crews that sound like flatulence, which... In which case, honestly, that was the something trumpet or something. The, the uh, brass typhoon. The brass which, typhoon, uh, that's which right. Andy Greenberg says reminds him of flatulence. And now that I've seen it, I think I cannot unsee it. So thanks. To me, that sounds more like some despicable sex act than uh, flatulence, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah, probably, something that you, yes. would, you would never admit <laughs> to enjoying, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's worth a read just for the chuckles, even if you're not deeply invested in the... You know, crew naming taxonomy debate. All right, Adam, that's it for this week's news. Thanks a lot for joining us, my friend, and uh, we'll do it all again next week. Yeah, thanks, Pat. See you at the end. That was CyberCX's Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. And it is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Brian Dye, the chief executive of Corelight. And Corelight maintains the Zeek network sensor, which is pretty much the industry standard sensor that you put on your network to collect like security relevant information and about a year ago they also spun up like a cloud ndr product so you can you know you can pointy clicky your way around the data their sensor collects now uh, and uh, you know before that people would just plug zeke into their seams or whatever they have some absolutely gigantic massive mega corporations as uh, as customers but yeah their cloud ndr thing has all the machine learning pixie dust uh, that these platforms have these days as well and now they have a new feature. Uh, and last week I spoke to Brian Dye about how Corelight is using ChatGPT in their product. And shockingly, what they're doing actually sounds quite useful. So here's Brian Dye. We had some customer advisory board discussions where, and again, we, we are really privileged to serve some of the most sophisticated organizations in the world down to the, the mere mortals of the Global 2000, right? So these are all really savvy defenders. And what was really amazing to us is they are using this already day in, day out, right? Uh, so what they were doing was really simple stuff, right? Looking up context on an alert, 
looking up guidance for next steps on investigations. Even some of them were using uh, you know, things like ChatGPT almost like co-pilot for their sim, where they'd have it craft basic sim queries. And once we realized that the savvy defenders are already doing this, our whole philosophy is take what the savvy defenders are doing and make that available to everybody. We knew we had to put this in as raw capability. Yeah, so what does that actually look like, right? Because these, I, I, my understanding of these models is pretty limited. But yeah, how do you go about integrating a model like this into a NDR platform? I mean, there's really two parts of it. Number one, you've got to get really clear about what problem you're solving. And so for us, the problem was, how do we provide context around the alerts that are happening? And how do you provide guidance on next steps in the investigation? That was the easy part, right? Because like I said, our customers led us directly to that. The hard part is how you do that. Yeah, that's what I mean. Up, like, how do you actually go about then? Okay, I mean, it sounds great, but how do you then go about giving it the information it needs to be able to explain the context to you, right? Like, how does that work? Yeah. You, you may have heard this phrase, prompt engineering, yeah. right? People are talking about it as a new job class. It's a, it's a thing. And look, the, we, we saw this ourselves. Like, if you could hand it something super simple, let's take a really easy use case. I have a Suricata alert, an IDS alert, and I want to understand what it means. We had four different people craft a prompt into GPT, uh, chat GPT in this case, to try and get it to explain that Suricata alert. And we got four very different answers. So a lot of what we did was really spend the time and effort to learn our own prompt engineering, customize it to this domain, so you get a useful, practical, consistent answer back. Because it turns out that is way harder than you would think it is on what ought to be fairly straightforward cybersecurity questions. Yeah, so... so at this point though, like how is the, your user actually using this? You know, are they typing in the prompts themselves or are they clicking a button which spits a prompt into the model? Like how have you implemented this? Yeah, it's, we've tried to make it super simple. So you, let's say you get presented with an alert. There's a, a button that says, explain this alert. And then we handle all the query engineering behind that to curate that prompt correctly. And then to, then we present the result, of course. That they so you, you've seriously had result. people figure out the phrasing uh, yes. for chat GPT, which might say, you know, in the style of whatever and using only information from here, here and here, explain to me what blah, 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 blah. That's how you've done it. Oh, yeah. The, and, and behind the scenes, there's a button that says explained alert. I think it literally has two words on it. The prompt is, I want to say, eight lines of text, Yeah. right, to actually get that to return correctly. And we literally did that not just for the alerts, but also for things like investigation guidance. What the user will type in is, what? how would I investigate this? And then we've done the 10 lines of, of properly written prompt to go and turn that into the right level of detail and right level of, of direction for that particular alert or that particular investigation. So that's interesting, right? And and how these prompts that you've you've developed, like how universal are they across different types of alerts, right? Because you might have a prompt, explain this particular alert to me, and you've figured out the prompt and it works fine. But then you say, you know, use exactly the same prompt, but like change the name of the alert or the alert code or whatever, and then it falls over, right? Have you, did you experience that? Or once you've got a good prompt, it's it's quite universal as, as far as uh, uh, various alerts go. For classes of alerts, it's actually fairly durable. So like if you take, you know, because we think a lot about explainability on alerts and the platform overall. So we've already invested in things like all of our machine learning alerts already have rich descriptions and provide great context. Look, if there's eight or nine you know, variables that are in this model, here's how to look at visually which ones are kind of in line versus out of line with expectations. So you know, this alert explainability concept has been a big one for us. 
But if you look at you know things like an ET Pro rule set where there's thousands upon thousands of alerts, those actually tend to be pretty durable in terms of how the AI engines handle them once you get the prompt right the first time. So hang on, hang on. Once you've got the prompt right, can't you just generate then all of the content that explains these alerts, store them as text, and then just throw away ChatGPT, right? Because you can own the copyright of what you're, you know, that's what you're paying for, right? With a ChatGPT license. So couldn't you just pre-generate these explanations and then, you know, just, just spit them out when someone asks you to explain them? I mean, caching is pretty straightforward and a, a logical thing to do just from a performance standpoint. But, you know, bear in mind, the alerts are always evolving. The signature sets are always evolving. So you, you will never be able to cache everything. And honestly, the I want to give credit to all the LLM providers, the large language model providers. Mm-hmm. These things are super cost effective. They are just not expensive to go and do the individual queries. So I'd rather solve for getting the latest and greatest as they continue to improve their engine rather than just making everything static, right? It's There's not enough money or cost of goods uh, involved here to kind of say, you know, that's not the focus, right? No, no, I get it, I get it, I get it. data for the defender. I just wonder how durable these things will be over time. You know, when they when they do a major update uh, to the model, it could start making stuff up about your alerts. That's, you know, that's just one thing that I, um, that I worry about. But then again, I think that gradually we're going to have this culture where we... We understand that the output from these tools is a guide, and that they can get a bit hinky sometimes, right? I, like I just think that's something we're gonna we're gonna come to accept. No, a hundred percent. And I, I think as more and more companies themselves start using GPT and these large language models, one of the things you know, for, I was talking to a number of other CEOs in this area. Uh, one of the other CEOs commented that they have an entire Slack channel that's dedicated to you know company approved prompts. So if you want to summarize a meeting well, here's the prompt you use to do it. So this is going to become like, it's almost like a harder version when we all had to learn to use Google. It's hard to mm-hmm. remember that, right? It's been a while. But there was a bit of a learning curve there of how to drive the search effectively. And I think it's a steeper learning curve. So all of us are going to become a little bit of prompt engineers, right? Well, Moving of course. I mean, that's why, the, that's why the whole thing about prompt engineering is ridiculous, right? It's like, it's like saying, a, you know, I'm a Google search query engineer, you know? Yeah, except the difference in here is there really is a level of depth in the domain to be effective. So if you took my marketing team and asked them to go and actually drive the right prompts to do alert context around cyber, they're going to have a hard time. If you hand that to my labs team, they can crank it out and do a great job. So I think that the domain really still does matter. And there is an art, especially early on here. And yeah, but that's the thing. It's early on, right? Like I do wonder, I, I think they're going to get better at handling more generic or, you know, less, less uh, constructed, engineered, complicated prompts. You know, I don't think, you, I don't think we're always going to need to do that. Let's put it that way. No, I, I, look, I think it's going to be fascinating just to watch how fast this whole space evolves. And look, you you can look at kind of what a couple of different companies are doing here, right? So you look at one of the earlier movers like Orca that came out and did uh, alert investigation next steps. I think that was really cool. Contrast them with somebody like Recorded Future that just recently actually did a, a whole essentially customized model because they have a huge data corpus. So I think there's a huge spread of what you could do here that will continue to open up as an industry. Um, what's really going to be interesting, I think, is when we get to this point of the vendors are, are moving on this fast because we control our, you know, we have a narrow focus. We control the domain, we control technology, we can hand that over. The defenders themselves, as they start doing in-house models and they start saying, what do I do? And now how do these two things work together? How do the vendor provided models and the, the company specific models actually work together? 
that's going to be its own frontier that fortunately nobody knows the answer to yet. I think, frankly, uh, we will figure this out over the coming quarters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, so uh, uh, just back on your stuff for a moment, you mentioned, uh, you know, next steps for investigations. Like, is this a feature already in the product or it is actually being announced at RSA? I should mention we're recording this the week before RSA uh, and it yes, will be published yes, the, week, uh, the week of, I think. But yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so it's just going in the product now. Has it been has it been used by uh, beta testers or anything yet? Yeah, we we're in beta right now, so it's gonna, we're announcing it now. It's in beta now. It'll actually release later after RSA. Uh, and as I said, the the big inspiration for us was literally how defenders are already using this. Yeah. So the and the challenge even that they're having is the how senior your analyst is will dictate how well they can structure the query and uh, the the prompt and how much it helps them. Because one of the things we found is the because there's a hallucination problem in the AI world, as yes. I'm, I'm sure you've heard about. The the more you know, junior the analyst is, the more help they're going to get from AI. The more senior the analyst is, the more nuanced their understanding is, and the more that they're likely to not get as much acceleration. Because think about it: when you're starting an investigation, your initial thesis may be right or wrong. So the guidance from the AI prompt is only going to be as good as your steer, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So this is actually what I thought is like, in terms of upskilling a junior, having a chat GPT guided thing where they're doing a bunch of investigations and after they've been told 10 times, look, your first step needs to be this, they're not going to need to ask the model anymore, right? Um, I mean, having a model that you can just ask, well, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, where to next? And having it spit out stuff, even if the stuff it spits out is wrong and causes them to dead end, that's still a learning experience experience for them, right? So I, I think in terms of like upskilling juniors, it, it's going to be really valuable. Yeah, and you know, by the way, juniors, I would say, is not just a statement of um, of tenure, but it's a statement of how broad, like how many tools and how broad is the environment you're trying to manage, right? If you're one person of a hundred person team, then you're going to have a pretty narrow focus area. If you're one of three, four, or five people trying to run defense for an entire organization then you're, you're having to become the master of all, right? And it's really hard to have that breadth of domain expertise. So I think there's a lot of value in this assistance when you're in that kind of breadth situation because mm. you're really getting the domain-specific help in many, many areas where it's really going really to be impactful. So you've got a button that says explain this alert and then you've got, what, a prompt for um, where, the, where the user can actually ask questions around investigations and stuff. Like, so they're the two things that you've introduced. Yes, and yeah. the, we think that there's going to be a lot of really rapid iteration here because even if you look at GPT-3 to 4, right, some of the architectural characteristics there, GPT-4 opens up, instead of 3,000 words on a prompt, you could do 25,000 words. Uh, you couldn't take action at GPT-3. You can take action with the GPT-4 plugins. I think the underlying LLMs are going to mature and enable so much uh, at an incremental velocity, but we're also concerned of I mean, feature velocity on our side but we're also really paranoidly aware of where the limitations are because there are a bunch of things that, for example, you should not be and no security analyst should be using these models for. For example, looking up data on recent CVs. Horrible, right? Because all their training data comes from 2021, maybe part of 2022. Mm. So the more you're looking for kind of current events on these models, the more they're going to let you down. So I think we have to both take advantage of the underlying uh, tech as it evolves, but also really take on the job of explaining to people where the pitfalls are so we can yeah. avoid those as well. Well, I mean, what you've spoken about here are a couple of uh, pretty simple use cases. I'll be very curious to, I mean, I'm definitely going to bump into a user, one of your users who's using it eventually, right? And I'll be really curious to see 
how useful it is, you know, either for them or for some of their more junior staff. But uh, Brian Dye, that's all we've got time for. It was a pleasure to chat to you as always and uh, all the best with it. Hey, thanks, Patrick. Great to see you and great thanks for having us out. That was Brian Dye there, CEO of Corelight, and uh, he was talking about how they're integrating ChatGPT into their product in a way that is actually sensible. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Seriously Risky Business, which is a, a different podcast that I host here at Risky Biz HQ, and you can subscribe to that one via the Risky Business News podcast feed, different feed. Uh, but until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.